This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Also, make sure to check out and subscribe to our YouTube original channel, UCTV Prime, available only on YouTube at youtube.com slash UCTV Prime. This UCTV podcast is sponsored in part by Audible.com, your destination for the widest selection of digital audiobooks available, including many by guests you've heard here on UCTV. Audible.com is offering UCTV podcast listeners a free 30-day trial subscription and one free audiobook download. Just visit audibletrial.com slash UCTV to sign up. That's audibletrial.com slash UCTV. And thanks. Good morning. Welcome to Livermore in the Bankhead Theater. Third of four Science on Saturday presentations. Local educators, in conjunction with the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, produced this series so you can learn science from those who are making history through its use. This year, we're broadcasting this event live online by visiting the Livermore Labs Facebook page or watch it on your mobile device by visiting livestream.com forward slash LLNL. Questions can be posed to the presenters through the chat box uh, below the video, or you can tweet your questions by including the Science on Saturday hashtag. The notes of this presentation can also be downloaded. Our lecture today is Space Junk, Traffic Cops in Space. Who knows the name of the first artificial satellite in space? Yell it out. Sputnik is correct. It was launched in 1957 and was the first orbiting, orbiting satellite. The latest launch of future space junk was on Valentine's Day when the SES telecommunications craft weighing 6,180 kilograms went into orbit. That's 6.8 tons for those that are metrically challenged. This morning's presenters are Tom Schiffler and Dr. John Henderson, and they'll explain the technology behind tracking this junk. Tom received his Master's of Arts degree in Astronomy and Astrophysics from the University of California at Berkeley. While at Berkeley, he researched, analyzed, and cataloged Hubble Space Telescope images of galaxies. During his graduate studies, he fell in love with teaching and entered the teaching profession in 2002 and teaches physics and calculus at Granada High School here in Livermore. Dr. John Henderson is a remote sensing scientist at Livermore National Laboratory, where he leads the Space Systems Group in the Global Security Directorate. His publications and research interests include low-temperature solid-state physics, atomic physics, optical remote sensing, laser communications and remote sensing for treaty verification, and technologies for space situational awareness. He received his PhD in physics from Stanford University. Please put your hands together for Dr. Henderson and Tom Schiffer. Good morning. We uh, have a variety of interesting things to talk about this morning. And uh, so, and uh, Tom has some good demos that we'll, we'll get to in a little bit. So the uh, things we want to, to learn today are, we're going to talk about what space junk is and why we care about it. Uh, we're going to learn some of the science of orbiting satellites and high energy collisions. There are going to be some things that are very far outside of your normal experience, so you know, that, that should be a lot of fun. And we're going to see one solution. We're keeping tr better track 
of satellites and space junk. And that last piece is the traffic cops and space part. So what is space junk? The uh, headlines focus on large things re-entering. So this is the NASA URS satellite that re-entered in September. A month later, there was a European satellite. And then a month ago, uh, yesterday, there was a Russian satellite with 11 tons of toxic hydrazine that re-entered the atmosphere. So, you know, the headlines you read are one in 15 trillion chance of a person getting killed by a piece of space junk re-entering the atmosphere. And uh, I was interviewed on the radio, and they were trying to get me to say, oh, people should worry. And they interviewed a woman in the park pushing her, her baby in a stroller, and she's like, no, I'm not worried. Um, so if you, we're not worried about the headlines, you know, what, what are we worried about? Um, you know, this is Lottie Williams, who is, you know, one of the, is somebody who actually was hit by a piece of space junk. That uh, little, uh, the, you know, the, the uh, sort of gray object in the middle of the picture there is uh, about the size and weight of a soda can. And she was walking with some friends in a park in Tulsa, Oklahoma at 3 a.m. and uh, felt this tap on her shoulder and uh, was uh, very alarmed because she was concerned about, um, you know, other people that weren't in her group. And it later turned out to be a piece of a Delta II rocket. And then on the right side is a pressure vessel that um, these routinely come in and they're, they're used as part of the propellant system for rockets that get things into space. So there's, you know, a variety of definitions, the sort of official definition of space debris is uncontrolled objects in orbit bigger than 10 centimeters. And to give you an idea of how big that is, you know, this box here is about 10 centimeters, four inches in size. So, you know, this is what we keep track of, and that's part of the reason for the official definition is because it's the things we can keep track of. We'll talk more about what are the, uh, the size of objects that we do want to worry about. So, we talked a little bit about it. Let's see some real space debris. So this is a uh, real rocket. This is a real rocket launch camera on the rocket. So you'll notice um, with the vibration from the launch, there's little bits of you know snow, frozen and ice. The uh, propellants they use, the liquid oxygen, is at very cold temperature, so moisture condenses out. You know, you see little bits of stuff falling down um, now as the rocket launches further and further. Uh, we're, right now, we're looking at the, the camera is on a middle stage, so we're looking down on the lower stage of the rocket. See the uh, hot exhaust. Pretty soon, we're going to have separation. So watch from the separation. There's, you know, going to see several things. You know, welcome to space. Boom! There goes the lower part of the rocket booster. So you know, one of the main sources, or one of the many sources, are those rocket boosters. You also saw a bunch of debris, little bits of stuff. The way they separate the rocket boosters, they use explosive bolts to make sure that thing comes apart. You don't want anything sticking. So if you blow it up, you know those two are going to separate. All of that stuff, the rocket bodies, the you know, little bits of bolts, you know, from in space, from uh, using explosives to break these things apart, all of that is space debris. So, you know, why, why do we worry about this? Uh, because the real hazard is to other satellites, not to people on Earth. 
In 2009, so three years ago, there was a dead Cosmos satellite that collided with a working Iridium satellite. Totally destroyed it. $55 million satellite, boom. And we actually have a movie that we will look at in a little bit uh, where we uh, have a simulation of that collision. Less spectacular collisions occur on a regular basis. And um, the picture that we're showing here uh, in, on the right side is from the very first space shuttle flight. A tiny speck of paint hit the windshield. And, you know, that looks like a big crater. That's actually about a millimeter, you know, a twentieth of an inch across. Uh, one of the later space shuttle flights, a slightly bigger fleck of paint, went and hit the windshield and went about halfway through the windshield. So when you're in space, you don't want to lose your windshield. And there are less spectacular collisions that happen on a regular basis. We don't always know that it's space junk, but one of the largest parts of a satellite is its solar array. And so when a piece of space junk hits the solar array, it sort of destroys that part of the solar array. You lose some of the power. The satellite either may not be able to fully execute its mission or it may have its lifetime shortened. Satellites are designed to withstand hits from small debris. So basically something a centimeter in size, about this big, they're designed sort of two ways. Either they're mechanically robust or satellites uh, typically have redundant systems. They have two of everything so that if something like this comes and takes out something, they can switch over to the backup system. So, everyday uses of satellites. Need some, you know, raise your hand if you've got, uh, or call out, you got, what do we use satellites for every day? Yes, by the aisle. TV, okay. Go ahead. GPS, good. Other things, in the middle there. Cell phones. Cell phones. Well, regular cell phones, no. We have, you know, regular cell phones don't, don't use satellites. Yes, next. Radio, we have satellite radio. All right, so let's, let's take a look at my list. You guys did great on this. GPS, I use my GPS to get here today. I don't live in Livermore. Weather, this is a picture from a weather satellite of Hurricane Katrina. Spectacular. Obviously, the people there want to know when the hurricane's coming, when it's leaving. Weather forecasting, very, very important. Satellite radio, nailed that one. Satellite TV. Uh, we'll talk about that a little bit more when we talk about orbits. Uh, there are satellite cell there are satellite phones. So your regular cell phone is not going to use satellites, but if you want to make sure you've got, you know, you can talk anywhere in the world regardless of cell phone towers, you want a satellite phone. Farming. A lot of people may not be aware that farming is a very high-tech industry these days. They use Landsat data to assess crop health. The machines they use for farming use GPS to know where they are. They put those two together and they know how much fertilizer, how much water to apply to each specific area of the, uh, their farm. Resource management. These are Landsat images. If you just compare the two pictures on the right, um, all four of those are Shanghai area of China. But you see from 1984 to 2005, you know, that, that gray spot, um, sort of upper right area of the, the Blue Lake is Shanghai. And what you see looking between 1984 and 2005 is the gray area, the urbanized, the city area, has expanded tremendously in those 20 years. And, you, you know, as I mentioned, with the farm, you can use Landsat to uh, assess the health of crops. And, of course, science. Um, the Hubble you know, Space Telescope photos are, are just, you know, really amazing and wonderful to look at. 
There's also a variety of other applications, search and rescue, national security, troop support, treaty monitoring. Um, before we leave this, uh, I, I worked on uh, weather satellites for a while, and I want to make sure everybody gets something out of the talk today that they can use you know, for the rest of your life, and that is how can you judge for yourself whether a weather forecast is good? And the way you do that, we've got three lines here. So the top line is the weather forecast for the next few days on Tuesday. And then, you know, this middle line is the weather forecast that you get in, in, on, on Wednesday. And the bottom line is the Thursday forecast. And so I've lined them up so that, you, you know, the, the forecast for each day lines up under each other. So if, for example, you've got a ball game Thursday night and you want to know whether it's going to be rainy or the weather's nice, you know, on Tuesday you look and say, ah, partly cloudy on Thursday, great. Wednesday forecast, same. Thursday morning, it says partly cloudy. That's a consistent weather forecast. That means the weather, the weather systems are stable, the weather forecasts are stable, you've got a good forecast. If you look at Saturday, the two, you know, so on Tuesday the forecast for Saturday says cloudy. The Wednesday forecast says partly cloudy. The Thursday forecast says showers. That's an unstable you know, weather system coming through. There's a lot of variability. The weather models are having a hard time predicting what the weather is going to be. A lot of uncertainty. You don't know whether or not uh, you, you could have anything. It's a highly variable situation. So why is space junk a hazard? So satellites are very expensive to, to launch into to space. You know, you see the, the shiny bits are basically, this is aluminized mylar. Uh, with satellites you use gold-covered mylar uh, for a lot of the outside structure. So you can easily imagine something like this, very light, <clears throat> being hit by a bolt going at um, basically, instead of miles per hour, we talk about miles per second or kilometers per second which is, you know, thousands of miles per hour. So, you know, something like this, hitting something like this, guess who wins? And to illustrate that, this is a block of aluminum, you know, about this big. And the, uh, in the center there, you see a ruler, and next to the ruler you see a little slug of plastic that weighs seven grams. And that was sent at... Um, seven kilometers per second, which is um, you know, very fast. So, you know, that's about four miles per second, which is to say if you went from here to Shadow Cliffs in one second, that's how fast this would be going, thousands of miles an hour. The, uh, to give you, you know, and that made a 15-centimeter, six-inch crater in that block of solid aluminum. So to give you an idea of what seven grams is, you know, this is a fun-sized candy bar. If I had the ability to throw this at seven kilometers per second, you would not want to catch it. <laughs> so, all right, we were talking about how fast. Thing, collisions in space typically occur four to ten kilometers per second. The movie I'm going to show you in a little bit uh, between Cosmos and Iridium was actually uh, about 11 and a half. That's 9,000 to 22,000 miles per hour. And, if, you know, in terms of kinetic energy, that's... You know, something moving that fast has the same amount of kinetic energy as the energy you would have is if this were made out of high explosive and you detonated it. So a hand grenade has less explosive in it than this little candy bar, you know, in terms of weight. So that gives you an idea of you have something this fast hitting a satellite, it has more explosive energy than a hand grenade going off next to it. Why do things have to go so fast? And the answer is orbital mechanics. 
And uh, so we're going to do a little science here, and we're going to sort of calculate how fast things go two different ways. Now, I'm sure you, your, your teachers say double check your work. You know, calculate things two ways. And as a practicing scientist, you know, that is a good technique. It's an excellent habit to have. And so we're going to do good science right here. We're going to do this calculation two different ways. As, you know, the sort of easy way to do it is to say, okay, uh, and I'm going to use the Iridium satellite. You know, that is uh, 781 kilometers in orbit. Uh, so it's 781 kilometers above the surface of the Earth. You have to add in the Earth radius of uh, six, um, a little over 6,000 kilometers. The circumference one time around the Earth, it, you know, it's just 2 pi times the radius, and then it's 100 minutes. Velocity is distance divided by time. You do the math, and you get 7.5 kilometers per second. All right. Who's taking uh, advanced physics in high school or AP physics? Bunch of people. Great. This is for you. You know, we've got the law of universal gravitation. So, you know, if you have something orbiting, all right, this is where I try and not take out the microphone. All right, something orbiting. There's, you know, this is wanting to fly off. So, you know, there's a force, in this case, gravity, that's pulling this, you know, satellite in towards Earth. And you can calculate the, the force of gravity is basically proportional to the mass of two objects. And you've got the gravitational constant in there, and you divide by the square of the radius. You know, so that tells you the force on the satellite. From or, uh, rotational mechanics, you know, I have two formulas on the chart. The first one gives the acceleration as a function of the rotational velocity omega, and then the velocity as a function of omega. And you can, you know, you now have three equations and three unknowns, you can solve it with the numbers we just used. And again, you get seven and a half kilometers per second. So, you know, this is the way you do good science. This is the way you do good homework, is you double check your work. Ideally, you do it two different ways. So, how far away do you think satellites are? Any volunteers? Yes. Okay, Lord, I'm, I'm looking for an answer in miles or kilometers. Okay. 20 miles. 20 miles? Okay, that's one, one guess. And, all right. 20,000 miles. All right. We have a very large bracket there. <laughs> and we'll take one more. Yes. 100 miles. Okay, 100 miles is about 160 kilometers. That's about as low as you can go and have something stay up for more than a couple of months. Once you get down to about 150 kilometers, things are coming down real soon. So let's take a look here. This is kind of the uh, uh, quick map of space. This is all to scale. So we've got the Earth as the blue globe on the left. The, uh, you know, and there's sort of four different orbits that we talk about. We talk about low Earth orbit, also known as LEO. And about half of the working satellites, there's about 1,000 working operating satellites out there, and um, about you know, 480 of them are in low Earth orbit. So that goes out to about 2,000 kilometers. And even within that, there's a very uh, popular orbit between about 700 and 850 kilometers uh, where there's a tremendous number of satellites. Many of them go over the North and South Pole, uh, fairly crowded orbit, and we'll look at the impact of that in a moment. That goes out to about 2,000 kilometers. And then there's, uh, so, so there actually there's some weather satellites there. 
medium Earth orbit, there's about 6% uh, of the working satellites. That's uh, Typically, you have satellites about 20,000 kilometers there. So the 20,000 miles was, was an interesting, you know, was, was close to that. This is where the GPS satellites are. And then geosynchronous orbit in blue on the right is uh, about 40% of working satellites. So we talked about satellite TV. This is where those satellites are. Uh, communication satellites are there. There's weather satellites. And the, the reason it's called geosynchronous is the satellites there basically orbit above the equator, and they take 24 hours to go around the Earth once, which means as the Earth rotates in 24 hours, that satellite stays over the same spot on the Earth all the time, which is why you can have your satellite TV dish pointed at a specific location because the satellite is not moving relative to you on, on the Earth. And then uh, in the, the pink color around the outside, we have the highly elliptical orbits, which are about 4% of working satellites, and uh, they're sort of special purpose. One of the biggest objects in low Earth orbit is the International Space Station. So of the you know, roughly 480 satellites in low Earth orbit, the International Space Station is only one of those you know, 480, 500 satellites. But it, because it is so big, it's half the total mass. And to give you an idea of how big the, uh, the, the International Space Station is, excuse me. <clears throat> this auditorium would only be about one-sixth of <clears throat> the size of the International Space Station. So we need six auditoriums this size to have room to bring this here. All right, what does a cartoon have to do with space collisions? This is Wile E. Coyote, one of my favorite cartoons. Um, always getting in trouble, often has these, you know, contraptions to get up to speed to try and catch the roadrunner and, you know, goes through walls and doors here, going through a rock bottom of a canyon. Because he's going so fast, rather than going splat, he just tunnels through. The reason I show this is that's actually what happens in space. The collisions are going so fast, your normal intuition of how a collision is going to happen uh, breaks down. And so Tom now has a, a wonderful demonstration um, that we can actually do here without going to dangerous speeds to, to illustrate how the, uh, the effect of speed on, a, on, a, on an interaction makes a big difference. Well, this demo doesn't actually involve collisions, but it does indicate that how something breaks does depend on the speed at which it breaks. So I've got two identical masses here. Both of these are 500 grams. 500 grams weigh a little bit more than a pound. And I've got some thread above and some thread below. And the question is, if I pull on the thread, the thread's eventually going to break. And the question is, is it going to break beneath the 500 grams or above the 500 grams? And the answer is, it depends on how fast I pull it. If I pull really slowly, then what's going to happen is, let's say I pull with about a pound of force. Then the string below feels one pound of tension. But the string above will feel not only my force of one pound, but the extra weight of the mass itself. So there should be more tension above. And that's where the string breaks. But if I pull quickly, then the breakage happens before the information that I'm even pulling can be transmitted to the top of the string. And what's more important in this case is 
Newton's first law that an object at rest tends to remain at rest, and the inertia of the mass is actually more important than the extra weight it adds to the string up above. Thank you, Tom. So let's go back to our block of aluminum and the, you know, the, the reason things happen like this is basically related to the speed of sound, which is about 4,000, 5,000 meters per second in most solid materials. So if the collision is happening faster than that, then there basically is no way for energy to get away from the collision. You know, you may not realize this, but you know, when you heat up a pan, when you whack into something, the energy that comes from that interaction gets distributed in the material. So if the interaction happens slowly, you have plenty of time for what are called phonons to distribute that energy throughout the material. If the collision happens fast, everything is local. There's no opportunity for that energy to go elsewhere in the material. It's all local, and that's why you end up with this big crater. It's because all the energy from the collision is right there, can't go anyplace else, you're basically annihilating the aluminum, you're annihilating the little plastic slug that, that hit here. And that's what happens in space. You literally punch through like we had in that Wiley e. Coyote cartoon. All right, movie time. So what we're looking at is on the bottom you see these two satellites. Uh, with the wings is the iridium and the, uh, the sort of drum-like uh, garbage can sized one is Cosmos. We have them labeled. So iridium is going to be in purple and Cosmos is going to be in yellow. Uh, you'll see that if you look at the top, you see their orbits come close near the North Pole. We just folded in all of the uh, roughly 1,000 satellites. We've made them larger so you can actually see them on the scale. And uh, our two friends are coming in close to each other. Bam. Okay, so we're going to break away for a moment. We also ha use our supercomputers to simulate several kinds of collisions. On the left is what we call full overlap. The two are smacking center through center. On the right is partial overlap. It's kind of a glancing blow. If you look on the bottom, you'll see a lot of the Cosmos satellite is intact. It hasn't been obliterated into that pink debris. And so we're using supercomputers here. You know, there's thousands of pieces of debris of all sorts of sizes. We now have the two debris clouds. Again, iridium in pink, cosmos in yellow. If you look, you see orange dots near the surface of the Earth. That's debris re-entering the atmosphere and burning up. And uh, one of the cool things about orbital mechanics is all of those pieces of debris are in orbit around the Earth, which means, and things in orbit sort of go back to where they started. And so what we see is all the debris is now funneling through the location where the collision happened. But because some of it's in high orbit or low orbit, it takes different amounts of time, so it gets spread out. Um, that little blue window, we're now simulating what a telescope on the Earth would see looking at some of those chunks of debris. And we also can simulate what radar sees. We actually simulate realistic debris. And we were, uh, in this particular collision, we were able to take our models and um, compare it to what was uh, observed eventually. There was about 600 large pieces of debris, so we could sort of do you know, CSI forensics on the collision by running different collision models and um, comparing that to what was actually observed. So we know that it wasn't a, a full-on collision, it was a glancing collision because of how we were able to compare to the debris. 
So now, having seen some man-made debris, we're going to talk about uh, sort of natural stuff. And uh, as my kids can attest, I have gotten them up at three in the morning to go you know, look at meteors. And the, uh, the question is, you know, why is three in the morning? Who would pick such a time to be prime time for meteor viewing? And so Tom and his students are, are going to give us a demonstration on that. So the uh, reason that three in the morning is the best time of day to see a meteor shower is kind of similar to the reason that if you are driving through a swarm full of bugs, you're going to get more splats on your windshield than on the back of your car. And that's because it's going to be on the side that is of the Earth that is going into the meteor field to the debris field that is all the collisions are going to happen. So here we have the Earth. There we have the sun over there. So if I lived in India right now, I'd be in the middle of the daytime side of the planet, so this would be noon over here in the United States, it would be midnight. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to simulate Earth orbiting the sun, passing through the debris field, so if you could generate a, a debris field. <laughs> so all of the debris, now notice the occasional random debris will hit on the other side of the planet, so you can see meteors, you know, 9 and 10 in the evening of the night of the meteor shower. Let's do it one more time. So let's have our uh, debris field. <laughs> so it's the side of the Earth going into the debris field that is going to experience most of the meteors. But at the same time, if I was, say, in Africa, sure, I'm on the side of the Earth going into the debris field, but it's also daytime. You're not going to see meteors in daytime. So 3 a.m. is kind of the optimal time because you're on the side of the Earth going into the debris, and at the same time, it's still the dark of night. The pre-dawn light hasn't hit the horizon yet, so that's why 3 a.m. is the best time to look at meteors. Let's do it one more time. <laughs> you can't have too many bubbles. I mean meteors. Whee. Thank you very much. We've learned satellites are important. We've learned a little bit about collisions in space. They're bad. How are we going to avoid them? So this is one way. It's an Air Force advertisement. All right, we've got one collision. Now you've got debris in orbit. And you're worried about the debris hitting one of your other satellites. That was close. All objects are accounted for. Good job. Learn more at airforce.com. Okay. So, the, uh, the picture you see in back actually looks like um, what, what things really look like at the Joint Space Operations Center. And, and, that's what the Air, the, and the Air Force runs the Joint Space Operations Center, and that is their job, is to keep track of, of debris and issue warnings. Um, as a practical matter, you don't move a satellite in 10 or 15 seconds. It typically takes about 24 hours for most satellites. The International Space Station, because it's so huge, takes about three days to plan a move of the International Space Station. So how is this done? How do we keep track of stuff? Uh, as I mentioned, the Joint Space Operations Center has what's called the Space Surveillance Network that they run. It's a collection of uh, basically radars and uh, optical telescopes. 
The radars are shown as the yellow dots on, on this uh, map, and the uh, red dots are optical telescopes, and the, the blue sensors are either radars or optical ones that get used on a sort of as-needed basis. So, for example, if it looks like something is going to come close to the International Space Station, we have people on board, they will bring in these other assets to make more measurements to get better accuracy to decide if they have to move the space station or protect the people. So um, one of the things that the, the, the Joint Space Operations Center is like air traffic control. They don't actually fly the satellites, but they keep track of where things are, and if it looks like two satellites are going to get close or a, a satellite and a piece of junk is going to get close, they will notify the satellite owners that there's a close approach happening and they generate about 50 to 75 warnings per day. And so that's for the, you know, and, and they're not keeping track of all the thousand operational satellites in orbit. Um, and to give you an idea of how significant that is, the space station itself does one or two maneuvers per year. And the space station is actually in a low orbit where every three or four months they have to reboost it. And the reason for that is because it's actually a relatively debris free. Uh, chunk of space because you're kind of right on the edge of the Earth's atmosphere, so b bits of debris slow down in the atmosphere, re-enter. So it's actually a fairly clean area to have the space station. Okay, so satellites get warnings. What happens after they get the warning? And the answer is, well, they don't do anything. And the reason, there are several reasons for this. One of them is some satellites can't maneuver. For the Iridium satellites, uh, each satellite will get about a uh, hundred warnings of a close approach during its roughly 10-year lifetime on orbit. As I mentioned earlier, it's a very expensive to bring fuel, to bring mass on board, and so a typical satellite only has enough fuel for four or five maneuvers. If you get a hundred warnings over the lifetime of the satellite, you will very rapidly use up all its fuel responding to any, any warning. So, you know, it's kind of like the boy who cried wolf. There's too many warnings that aren't going to be real collisions, and so you simply don't move the satellite. So what can you do about this? You know, how do you make the space junk problem better? And it's kind of like recycling. You know, for recycling you've got, you know, reduce, reuse, recycle. So the first step in preventing space collisions is to reduce the future problem. So you, you deorbit old satellites, uh, the booster bodies. Uh, you know, this aluminum plate is about the right size for the cover on um, the geostationary weather satellites, there's actually a couple of optical instruments. And this, you saw that junk in the launch, right? Bits of ice and bolts. You know, you've got a very expensive telescope on orbit. You have a cover to protect that telescope from all the space junk during launch until you get ready. And then our good old friend's explosive bolts, this goes flying. Um, we don't do that anymore. There's now different ways where things are sort of, you know, on hinges and springs, and this will flip out of the way. But that, in the early days, of space up until about 15 years ago, anything you didn't need, you jettisoned, and it's, a lot of it's still out there. So we don't do that anymore. Um, mitigation. So this is where you avoid the current problem, and you know, that's one of the, the, the cool things is that you know, we're involved in several things here. So one of it is to track everything. And to give you an idea of the problem, you know, I, we, I mentioned that there's the, the things that are tracked are about 10 centimeters, four inches in size, and there's roughly 20,000 objects that we keep track of. But we also said that things one centimeter in size are dangerous to satellites, and there's about 200,000 objects this size that we want to keep track of. 
So you need supercomputers if you want to be able to tackle that. You've got 200,000 threat objects and 1,000 satellites that you're worried about this thing whacking into. So you know you, you've got you know 200 million potential collisions to keep track of, and 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 everything is moving. So keeping you know track of everything, getting precise information on close approaches, and we're going to talk about that more, uh, more in just a moment. And then the other thing is, you, you know, you can obviously move the satellite. So if you get better information, if you no longer have the boy who cried wolf where you get so many false alarms, if you get a collision warning and you know you need to take it seriously because the collision warnings are so precise, you can move the satellite. Well, there's about 25% of the working satellites that can't move. They don't have any fuel on board. So one of the things you might do is use a laser, use light to give it a nudge. And... Um, Tom is going to do a, a demonstration here on the power of light. Something as flimsy as light actually push something to force it to move. And one way to demonstrate that this is possible is with a little device called a radiometer. And if you notice, the two uh, sides of each little vein in this little windmill-looking uh, contraption, one side's black, one side's white, the black side absorbs the energy of the light, heats up more, heats the air around it so we have different pressure on different sides and this is one way you can actually use light to encourage something to move. Okay, thank you Tom. So the third piece The third piece is retrieving it. And uh, you know some you know you may have seen there's um, some uh, uh, Swiss plan to send up CubeSat small satellites to go and retrieve stuff. Um, two years ago, I was at an international conference on uh, space debris, and it was sort of interesting to me because this is the first time I've ever been to a technical conference where the most interesting talks were given by the legal people and insurance agents. <laughs> so, you know, some of the questions are if you bring something down and you think it's space junk and somebody says, no, that's my test object, you know, you've just stolen their property from space. You know, if two things collide, who's responsible for that collision? So, you know, one of the careers, if you're sort of interested in technology but you really want to be a lawyer, you know, this is probably a growth area. <laughs> so, uh, we, we, at Livermore, we've developed something called STAIR, and, and I have to admit, I'm, I'm acronym impaired. I'm just impressed that my colleagues can come up with this stuff, um, which stands for Space-Based Telescopes for Actionable Refinement of Ephemeris. So ephemeris is the fancy name for knowing precisely the orbit of a satellite. Uh, refining it is doing a better job. And as I mentioned, right now we don't know where things are sufficiently precisely to generate warnings that people want to act on. So that's the actionable part. And then space-based telescopes is pretty clear. Um, what I have here is this is a full-size plastic model of what's called a CubeSat. This is a, a nano satellite, a small satellite that we are actually, it's, it's out of our hands now. It's in the process of being integrated into a spacecraft. It's scheduled to be launched in August of this year. And uh, at the, the one end here, we have a telescope and, which will make observations. So by putting sort of 18 to 24 of these in space, we now have more eyes in space. These are our traffic cops keeping track of things. And we can look at, so by using the regular system and say, okay, here's a close approach, we need to do a better job of getting the orbital information on both 
the uh, target uh, on both the on the uh, working satellite and on the, the junk or other satellite that's going to hit it. So what I'm, I'm showing on the, the picture here uh, is a picture that was taken by, we, we actually have built um, three cameras, uh, so we're planning on building three of these. The first one, as I said, is getting integrated, you know, is on the path to get integrated to the spacecraft. Uh, so this is a picture taken back in November uh, by one of our cameras, and the sort of black dot with the uh, orange halo is a very bright star, and then the other little dots are other stars. The orange streak is a rocket body, and as I mentioned, you know, rocket bodies are sort of one of the more common large pieces of debris in space. And if you look in the, the lower left corner, there's a red circle, which is the predicted information using 12-hour-old information from the catalog. So this, there's a catalog that has orbital information on all the working satellites and the roughly 20,000 pieces of debris that we keep track of. And you'll see that, in fact, that track ends where the blue circle is, and it's off by a little bit. And the other thing you'll notice is that those two circles are pretty well lined up with each other with respect to the, the line of the track, but the, the big error is in what we call the long track distance. And so just to do a little bit of mental math here, the, um, you know, we talked about light, and you're probably going, you know, how hard can light push something? How important does that need to be? And, and the answer is it doesn't have to push very hard because if you can change the timing along the orbit by a little bit, um, you know, even though two objects go through the same spot, if they go through at different times, there's no collision. So just to do a, a quick bit of mental math, the satellites are about one meter in size. The, the collisions are going at 10 kilometers, 10,000 meters per second, which means the collision, you, know, you sort of have about a 10 to the minus four second window for the collision to happen. And 100 minutes around orbit is about, you know, is, all right, so our, uh, 100 minutes is um, 6,000 seconds. So you've got, um, you know, 6,000 seconds, you know, call it 10,000 seconds, that's 10 to the fourth seconds, and, you know, collision happens in 10 to the minus four seconds. So all you have to do is change the velocity by about one part in 10 to the eighth. So, you know, one part in 100 million change in velocity would be enough to avoid a collision. So light can actually work for this. And so the picture in the upper left there is the real CubeSat. You know, you, we have the solar arrays on the one side on the top. Um, you know, on the, if you look on the side that's sort of facing to us, the shiny things are uh, another solar array that's uh, collapsed. And then the picture of the peop people holding it, that's to illustrate that, you know, the real satellite really is um, small. And, and the really cool thing about this is you know, we have all this capability. We have a high-performance telescope. We have a, a satellite that can navigate, you know, that can point itself to where the collision is going to happen. It can send, it does data processing on board. It can send it down. I mean, one of the wonderful things about working at Livermore is you get to do this cool science. You get to do fantastic engineering. That's the engineering challenge is to take all that capability, put it into the small package, and have it do what you want. And that, that is just, I mean, that makes it fun to go to work. So, today, what have we learned? Um, had some great comments from the audience. Uh, you know, a lot of people appreciate that the roles that, of satellites have in their everyday lives. We talked about what space junk is and how it can destroy or disable satellites. We did uh, some orbital mechanics and some material science. Um, got to see some 
a devastated block of aluminum. And then we talked about several ways we can reduce the threat of space junk. Okay, with that, thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.